What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the bus driver experience. This one's going to be episode 27. Let's pretend like you didn't hear that ding. And thank you guys so much for tuning in. Uh, thank you so much to our sponsors, Ambry Gardens, CBD company out of the great state of Colorado. Uh, and I've connected with a few of their reps over the phone. Um, shout out to Jake, uh, Jake Mendelson, and the stuff that they've sent over to me, the stuff that I'm now using. Um, I've taken CBD products before. No, no negative towards any CBD products I've taken in the past. But these CBD products have been working great thus far. I'm using a deep rub. Um, that's been great post-workouts and before bed. And uh, a nano droplet to add to smoothies, coffee, or just right under the tongue in general. Uh, it's a fast-acting one, and I definitely do feel less fatigue. I definitely feel less soreness. So go over and check out some of their stuff. That's going to be in the link below. Use promo code BUSDRIVER for a 25% discount on any and all CBD products. Even while the postal system is a little overwhelmed right now, these guys got me the products immediately. So go ahead and check out Ambry Gardens, ambrygardens.com, and use promo code BUSDRIVER for a 25% discount. One of the largest discounts I think they have. And that's a big support to the show. And thank you. Shout out to Ambry Gardens and Jake over at Ambry Gardens. And now for today's episode, I have Alex Epstein. Uh, Alex is the author, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. A little bit different than the narrative and norm that we all hear about uh, fossil fuels, their impact, positive or negative, uh, mostly negative to... Um, in popular culture, in the news, in the media, in policy. And so I had Alex, uh, invited Alex on the show today. We share a conversation on, you know, what is his stance uh, in terms of the moral case of fossil fuels? What does he think are the positives and how the positives outweigh a lot more of the negatives? Uh, he's got some interesting hot takes. And I think these was a very, very, very beneficial conversation to hear um, a new take and opinion and perspective about, more of the positives for fossil fuels and for us as society to weigh out how we, if we don't want to have and be so dependent on fossil fuels, what are some of the avenues or sacrifices we are willing to make if we cannot innovate ourselves out of the current, uh, current dependence on fossil fuels we have. And if we are going to switch over to different renewable energy sources, how will they be able to match or uh, compensate for um, not using fossil fuels as much. So check out some of his work, listen to his book, and uh, that link will be in the bio. Go check out his newsletter as well as his other podcast. And here's the episode with Alex Epstein. No, I'm not a writer. Okay. Alex, Alex Epstein, welcome on the show, man. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing great, man. I know we're both out in California. I know this uh, quarantine isn't too bad out here. I mean, it's, it's getting right into that summer mode where there's no clouds in the sky. We have these really cool bioluminescent lights showing up. I think like down. Yeah, I would say that. I mean, the government definitely gets no credit for that. But yeah, that's I've been uh, I've taken up surfing actually somewhat illegally in certain cases. But uh, yeah, I got to I was in San Clemente the other night and, and got to surf in the bioluminescent ocean, which is amazing. Oh, man. Yeah, I'm trying to get out there this weekend to check it out. You know, it, it is odd that you say that because I know in, uh, you know, if I just went out to Santa Monica, which would be closer beach to me, like, you know, they're passing out $1,000 tickets now. So you got to head a little bit more south, you know. $1,000. Yeah, I think your, yeah. your your entire county down there is like, uh, I want to say suing or just, you know, countering the government, uh, the state of California and the governor. So mm-hmm. it's... Uh, yeah, it's interesting. I think these are weird times. No one really knows how to treat and handle the situation. And we're all trying to, to figure it out. You know, everybody's getting a, a bad and hard rap on how to treat it properly. But, you know, whether you're the president, you're getting a hard time, whether you're the governor of California, it's, it's, it's weird. It's, it's weird stuff. Yeah, I've actually been, I know we're talking about energy, but I, I've been commenting on this uh, a lot. So if people are interested, if you just YouTube my name and search Power Hour, which is my podcast, you can see my, uh, my comments on it. Oh, sweet. What's your power hour about? What's the, the power show? Well, I've done, hour? I've done, oh, power hour. So it's a, it's a podcast about power or really about energy. So it's, I, I, I just recorded one about five minutes before this. And so it's just about 
interesting energy issues, energy, climate, I'm sure many of the things we'll talk about, but so mm -hmm. often a current issue in the news, or in this case, I talked recently about the Michael Moore movie, Planet of the Humans, which had come out and probably has 10 million people who viewed it so far. So yeah, that's my, that's my energy podcast. Yeah, I mean, we could jump right into that right there. Um, I, I'm guessing you've seen the documentary. I watched it the other day. It was pretty, mm -hmm. uh, pretty interesting take. You know, it's somebody, uh, you know, who primarily is, uh, you know, politics uh, always seems to overflow into areas like this, whether, you know, whatever side of the climate or energy argument you're in on. And, you know, Michael Moore being more on the left and, you know, going against, uh, you know, kind of a lot of the norms and things I think that you go against and where it's just like, hey, you know, we've been told, that for the longest time, this stuff is the worst. Uh, our planet's going to die. We're going to die. It's a very uh, alarmist and negative uh, standpoint on how to do and how fast mm -hmm. we can g combat um, some of the issues or some of the facts or you know studies that people have been putting out there. And you know he goes even one further that you know that there's no way that any of the stuff that they are doing is happening or is working or is making the environment better. Mm -hmm. so what did you take from it? Yeah, so I think your summary is is accurate. I'd, I'd think of it as the, the the starting premise is that you know fossil fueled civilization is destroying the planet, and then the usual view is well, green or renewable energy is going to come to the rescue. So it's going to allow us to have a similar standard of living, but without the supposed destruction of the planet. And basically, what Planet of the Human says is no any kind of modern industrial civilization that uses the amount of energy that we do is going to destroy the planet. So green energy is no solution. And the thing that I, so I, I disagree in terms of the destroying the planet, which we could definitely talk about, but I do agree that it makes a lot of valid points about green energy. Most people think of green energy with a, a kind of halo above it. Like, oh, this is some magical process where just the sunlight flows in and then we get electricity and it's just totally clean and it's perfect. And what he points out in the movie is whether you're talking about sunlight or wind or batteries, these are all very uh, industrial processes. They involve massive impacts of our environment to mine the materials, to transport the materials, to assemble the different kinds of elements, uh, to uh, you know, take up huge amounts of space. And there are a lot of, a lot of unpleasant byproducts. And so he, he's a lot bringing attention to this. And then he's also bringing attention to the fact that with solar and wind, because they're based on inter, what you can call intermittent or unreliable inputs, namely the sunlight and the wind are not continuous controllable sources of energy. There's a huge dependence on the controllable or reliable sources of energy, mostly fossil fuels and to some extent hydro and nuclear. So in those respects, in terms of green energy does have a big impact, that's important. And then also that it's very dependent on fossil fuels that's important as well. But then I totally disagree with the conclusion. Well, we're just all screwed until we have in effect eliminate a lot of humans, which is the not so subtle implication of the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was a really great quote. Uh, and it's, it's one of my uh, big questions for, you know, every, everything that you're going in. Cause you know, it's uh, infinite growth on a finite planet, a suicide. Our human presence is already far beyond sustainability and that it implies, um, that then it implies. And, you know, like, like you mentioned in, in your book and you go into detail, it's like the, the amazing benefits of the technology and what a fossil fuels were done for the levels of technology that we've had. You know, I'm someone who's been to 50 countries. I've lived all around the world. You know, I've seen the benefits for peoples all around the world, you know, the, the implements of different technologies and as well as, you know, coal, fossil fuel uh, or gasoline or oil that these places might never had whether that's even just adding a road into their town, into their village that they wouldn't have experienced before. Um, so, it, I mean, it's, it's interesting to see how much more and how far we can push the planet as well as push the people. And I know that is, you know, your biggest, uh, your biggest argument in case. And how far do you think that we can push this planet if we're continuously growing on a population scale and continuously to use the certain energy outputs or energy inputs such as fossil fuels? I think when we hear ideas like, you know, our way of life is unsustainable, mm -hmm. one question to ask is what's the track record of this idea? 
like how, what and in particular the people making these claims or people who have made similar claims what's the track record and one thing i talk about in the first chapter of the moral case for fossil fuels and a little bit in the uh, in the eighth chapter is that there's a huge track record of what I would call environmental catastrophism, which is basically saying that humans having a lot of impact on our environment is going to lead to catastrophe. And maybe the longest standing view is, well, we're gonna run out of resources, right? We're gonna use more, and then the planet only has so much to give us, and we're going to run out. And the first thing to know about this idea to be suspicious of it is that these predictions have been made for 200 plus years, and they've continuously come false. So you've had people say, we're gonna, we're gonna run out of food, we're gonna run out of metal, we're gonna run out of oil. And in general, what happens is you can think of it as we run into them. We have more and more and more. And one, one interesting graphic that the movie uses, although I think misuses it, it shows basically in the last 150 years, I forget exactly the timetable, maybe even just 100 years, um, or 200, let's just say 200 years, there's a tenfold increase in the human population on earth and then a tenfold increase in income. And the, Jeff Gibbs, the director, says this is the most terrifying realization I've ever had because it's basically there's 100 times more impact on the world because you know, 10 times as many humans with 10 times as much income, which basically means resources. But, my, but if you think about that, 100, 200 years ago, people were saying we were already running out of resources. So how is it that we're, we were running out of resources then and now we use 100 times as much as a species? Mm-hmm. And we still haven't run out. And even with something like oil, what's the problem right now? We're running into it, right? There's too much of it, in a sense. The price is, is, is plummeting. So I think the history of this idea should make us suspect there's something deeply wrong with this idea that it's a finite planet that we're going to run out of. And the key fallacy here is the idea that human beings are parasites, that nature gives us a finite amount of resources, and that all we can do is consume and extinguish them. In reality, human beings are producers who can create new resources. You think of aluminum, for example. Aluminum is one of the most abundant materials in the earth. Is aluminum a valuable resource? Most people would say yes, but 300 years ago, it wasn't a resource at all. It was useless because we didn't have the ingenuity to transform that raw matter into a resource. And so what human beings have is we have minds that enable us to transform raw matter and energy into usable resources. And if you have that perspective, and if you just think of the earth as a ball of raw matter and energy and the the universe as an unlimited source of raw matter and energy, then you realize, wait, we can just become more and more productive as we have more and more ingenuity to figure out how to produce more and more things. So that's the reason why life keeps getting better and better, even though people think it'll get worse because we're, we're falsely regarded as parasites when actually we are resource producers. Yeah, uh, it's it's really interesting what's going on with oil right now. I think it's a it's a big hit to any uh, any green car or green energy because you know I mean what it's you're getting paid to store oil. You know, so if you own a warehouse in Oklahoma or Texas, I mean, you could literally buy a warehouse and get thrown thirty dollars a barrel just to take our oil from us. I, I yeah, I don't think that, I don't think it's a long term uh, <laughs> investment. That I wouldn't advise people to do ju- exactly that. But yeah. I mean, it's going to be interesting, like you said, to see, uh, you know, what comes out of this. Our oil price is going to be able to stay this low, especially with, Mm -hmm. you know, the amount of, I think, you know, what President Trump tried to do was limit the amount of output that, you know, Russia, Saudi Arabia, even us to put, you know, down to 10 million barrels a day. But that just went into effect five days ago. You know, Mm -hmm. oil oil is just sitting in the middle of the ocean or right off the coast of oceans, I mean, to buy a, a container ship. So, I mean, it'll be interesting to see how low and how long gas prices could stay low or at the same time you know if we have so much of it and maybe you could answer this question better why are the prices remain so high or is that still at a state-by-state case you mean oh the gasoline prices yeah yeah that's not something i'm i'm a super expert on i mean i know some of the dynamics which is one is just it it takes a while of it being sustained at a low level before people can really afford to lower prices because if, if you don't know how long it's going to be a lower price it doesn't really do you that much good to like lower your price dramatically and then you raise it and then you make people angry. But if it's a sustained lower price, then eventually people will compete you down whether you want it to or not. Because people think, oh, it's going to be $30 a barrel oil. I can beat out the local gas station by charging lower prices and ultimately they'll have to comply too. So Mm. it's longer term things. And then places like California where we live, we have all sorts of specific mandates that make our gasoline some of the most, um, expensive in the US. I'm, I'm curious, by the way, 
I, I forgot to look into this. Why is this called the bus driver podcast? Oh, because that's the character I play. I'm the bus driver. Um, but are, uh, were you actually a bus driver? So I used to be a professional basketball player, a uh, college basketball player, professional basketball player. Um, Where? Uh, I played at Syracuse and then I played in Israel, Canada, Ukraine, Poland, wow. Poland. Did you play when they won the championship? No, uh, we did win two Big East championships, but um, all my wins ended up getting forfeited and taken away due to one guy not going to class, a um, bunch of NCAA scandals, um, not pertaining to me at all. I was not a part of those, um, wow. but the, all your wins get taken away. So now I'm back to uh, from one of the most winningest players to the least winningest player. <laughs> in school history especially everybody in my class uh or all of us who were there during hmm. my, my tenure and so i got into uh podcasting when i got off the uh when i stepped away from basketball and i stepped away from coaching and it's been the past three years uh taking the show all around the world even on a bus i took a bus from uh, utah all the way to chile um because it's not just about uh, interviewing people. I create and produce a video story that goes along with the show itself. Mm. And uh, yeah, I'm taking you on a journey through my eyes and I'm going to you know, shine a light and have interesting conversations with people such as yourself and get their take uh, on the world, especially what they specialize in or what they're uh, interested in. Uh, awesome. Sorry if that was a redundant question for the audience, but no, no, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Yeah. It's not very, uh, based off of uh, anything. It's just the character I play. It's the nickname I have. And uh, I actually just worked, went on a project um, with this company out in Venice, the Venice Basketball League. And they were looking for a basketball playing bus driver. And I, you know, when so I got the call, I got the call up for that. And uh, we have this uh, 501C, we have this bus, we converted to a basketball machine and we drove it from here to Chicago to convert a basketball court out in uh, the west side of Chicago, like an improv. I would say under underserved community that probably would mm. never be able to go to an NBA all-star game. And we kind of remodeled and raised a bunch of funds to build them this brand new basketball court in this community center and create an entire five day event with tens of thousands of people uh, like their own NBA all-star experience mm. there, mixed in with uh, the NBA all-star experience from creating merch like these t-shirts with this big company, Avery Dennison, who, uh, actually makes all the patches for NFL and NBA and, uh, and the MLB jerseys. Um, and we just created like a whole little like uh, experience out of it. So it was really cool. And it was uh, really enriching to be a part of. Awesome. Yeah. So I kind of do it all the conversations, the content creation and uh, bringing uh, information and news back to people. Cool. That's what it's all about. But let's go back into uh, let's take it into your book. And um, you know, you wrote this book back in 2012 or 2014 was it? Uh, 2014. 2014. And this goes, you know, just so the, the title of the book, I know pops eyes on people. And then even the premise of the book and, uh, you know, where you stand throws a bunch of, it brings people's, uh, grabs people's attention right away. Like, whoa, mm -hmm. what, why? So, you know, again, uh, give us a little uh, history or a background, a brief, you know, what got you to want to write this book and, um, you know, where it's taking you up to today. Sure. So the title of the book is, is The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's, it strikes people because usually you think about the moral case against fossil fuels. We're told that we're morally obligated to rapidly eliminate fossil fuel use to save the planet. And so it's, it's unusual to say for somebody to say, no, actually, we should continue and increase fossil fuel use over the next several decades, which is, is the premise of my book. Often people think, oh, well, this must be a stunt where the oil industry somehow found me and offered me a bunch of money to say this. I didn't even know anyone in that industry or any, anyone in the energy industry when I came up with my ideas. And I don't come from a place that's pro-fossil fuels. I, I grew up in a place called Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is a super liberal place in the, in the D.C. area. Um, so the, the part of my background I think was really relevant is I decided when I was 20, I wanted to be what I would call a practical philosopher. So I wanted to use philosophy, which is considered impractical, but I think of as very practical because it teaches you how to think very logically and precisely about issues. And I wanted to apply it to really, uh, really important issues, but that were also really complex and hard to think through. And maybe seven years into my career, I started happening on energy. And I really had known nothing about energy, had very little interest. All I had heard was, well, the main energy we're using, fossil fuels, they're destroying the planet. And my guess, my guess, was, my guess at the time was that was exaggerated, but I certainly had no affinity 
uh, for fossil fuels. But then I, I really started studying it from the perspective of if we really weigh the benefits and the side effects of the alternatives. So we don't just look at the benefits of solar and the side effects of fossil fuels, but we look at you know, the pros and cons of both with as much precision and accuracy uh, as we can. Like, what's actually the path forward? And I was surprised to conclude that I really thought that fossil fuels were on balance really crucial. And the, the main two reasons are one is that they're by far the lowest cost way of producing energy for billions of people. And I think that's something that's not really understood. And then the other thing is that the, that the side effects, they, they do have side effects, including I do believe they have a warming influence on climate, but I think those are very exaggerated. So if you think about in terms of the benefits versus the side effects, like you'd think about a vaccine or antibiotic where you always have to weigh those kinds of things. I think of as fo fossil fuels as like this wonder drug, but we're so fixated on the negative and, and we have such a tendency to exaggerate it that we can't see that billions of people are going to have better lives if we're allowed to use this because it's going to allow billions of people to have energy, which means really the miracle of having machines do our work for us. Billions, you think about like incubators, hospitals, certainly during COVID-19, we should really be thinking about how, how amazing machine power is. And really, if we can use fossil fuels, billions of people can have the miracle of machine power. And if we don't, uh, billions of people are going to have far less of it or none of it. And we already are in a world where 3 billion people have almost no machine power. They're using very little electricity and they're heating their homes and cooking their food with wood and animal dung. So my view is priority number one is the world needs a lot more energy. Fossil fuels are by far the lowest cost way of producing it. They do have side effects, but the side effects are worth it given the benefits. All right. Now, how, how and why is your belief just waste so is either very very small or doesn't really not many, many people have their share that same belief as you have why is it that so many more people are just going with the uh with the contrary well i think a lot i don't know how i mean i think millions of people at this point agree with my belief uh, substantively definitely not not the majority but I, i've been able to I don't know how many of the millions I've influenced. I mean, I've had millions of people see my stuff, but I'd say I mean, definitely hundreds of thousands at least have been influenced by my perspective significantly. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's the question of why. And so part of it could just be, well, people were brought up like I was in a different perspective and it takes a while to shift. For me, the most interesting thing is why are the specialists on the issue so at odds with me? So why do you have these, these groups of experts, smart, people, you know, different kinds of scientific societies, governments, let's leave aside celebrities because they're mainly parroting those more form. But you think of like really smart people saying, yeah, moral case against fossil fuels, we need to rapidly uh, eliminate them. And I think that I have two basic reasons what, what I think is, is going wrong. So one is, actually, I'll, I'll do three uh, quickly. So one is, I think, if you just observe the way even some of the really smart people talk about it, they're not looking carefully at the benefits and the side effects. They tend to just be looking at the side effects. And that's something I noticed early on. And my background in philosophy, I think, helps me notice that kind of thing. And even among smart people, it's a tendency to be biased, to only look for negatives on things and positives on others. So I was really disturbed when I saw we're only looking for negatives about fossil fuels and nuclear and only looking for positives about solar and wind. So, of course, we're going to conclude solar and wind are amazing and have no problems or have very few uh, problems. So I think one is just the method of what I would call not looking at the full context, not looking at the benefits and the side effects. Um, Another one is, and this relates to what you asked earlier about sustainability and running out of resources, uh, the, the idea that human impact on the planet is inevitably self-destructive, I think that's a very deep assumption people have. And the two versions are, if we impact the planet, we're going to run out of resources, but also we're going to make the planet dangerous. Like the more impact we have, the more dangerous the planet is. And that's just that's very common assumption. You just even hear when people say, well, climate change, they think if we're changing climate, it must be bad and it must be catastrophic. And it's really a religious kind of view that if we impact things, nature, Mother Nature is going to punish us. There's, it's, it's like a hell kind of thing, whereas that could sometimes happen, but, so, but often, usually when we change nature, it makes it much better. Like we, we, um, we drain a swamp of mosquitoes and we reduce or eliminate malaria. 
in an area. So in general, human impact on the planet makes the world less dangerous, not more dangerous, but there's this assumption that it'll get more dangerous. And this is why, and there's assumption that even if there is some danger, it's a catastrophic danger. So this kind of false assumption that human impact is self-destructive leads people to expect huge amounts of destruction. And the more I look at the history of these ideas, the more I see, for example, with climate, that people have been predicting mass death from climate, like storms and floods and heat and cold, for 30 to 50 years. And yet we're safer than ever from climate. We are safer than ever from drought, from storms, from extreme heat, extreme cold. And it's because, it's because the planet is naturally very dangerous, including the climate is very dangerous, but the more power we have, the more machine power we have, the more we can master it. Basically, the more we can you know, build sturdy buildings, the more we can heat and cool ourselves, the more we can alleviate drought. And so people's assumptions that human impact is bad makes them expect things like climate catastrophe, even when for 30, 40, 50 years, we're actually mastering climate and being safer. So that's that's the so the you know the first thing is people aren't looking at the full context. The second thing is they're assuming that human impact is self-destructive. And then the third thing is they're not consistently valuing human life. And this goes to planet of the humans. When you look at when they look at the planet today, they see this is a bad planet. Not just that it can't continue, they look at it today as bad. And yet, from a human perspective, the planet has never been a better place to live. It's never been able to support more people with longer lifespans, more opportunity. And so what's going on is people, when they're, when they're measuring good and bad for the Earth, they're not measuring good and bad from a human perspective. They're actually looking at it from the perspective of the rest of nature. They're saying, impact is bad. We want to minimize impact. And versus my perspective is, no, we want to maximize what I would call the flourishing of human beings. So our ability to live long, healthy, opportunity-filled lives. So that's, that's the third thing. So if you're not looking at the full context, you're assuming impact is self-destructive, and you're not consistently valuing human life, then you can see something like fossil fuels, which have been making life amazing for 200 years. And you can not only not acknowledge how good it's made the world, but you can expect it's going to be a catastrophe and you can do that for 50 years and be wrong for 50 years. And you're still like the fortune teller who thinks she's right, but gets it wrong. And so even smart people can make all three mistakes. And that's what I think is going on. I think that we've definitely made, you know, made amazing strides with, you know, as you mentioned, the things of, you know, the age of machines, what coal was able to do in the industrial revolution. And, you know, like you said, having machines do the work for us. And there's no doubt that, you know, like you mentioned, I, I think we've made the planet way more habitable for people. I mean, even when you go around, there's so much more, there's so much land we still can't use or use because, you know, it's a desert, it's dry, there's no water there, um, there's no vegetation there. So I, I think the biggest argument that, the, that, you know, most of the people from like Planet of the Humans are coming from is, have we made it as good for us as we've made it for the other species on the planet? Because, you know, to them, it's, hey, we're in the middle of a, the fifth or sixth mass extinction. I don't know. How, I forgot what the number is on how many we've had in our existence, but it would be like- They would say sixth. That we're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction, that we're losing a certain level or number of, number of species on this planet. So, I mean, as, as well as we've made the, this, this, as the planet for humans, have we made it as good or we've made it worse for, you know, the other species on that? Yeah, so this, this goes to my third point, which is I think we're not looking at the planet from a human perspective. So it's, it's, it's really a philosophical issue, how you think of the relationship between human beings and, and the rest of nature. And there's, there's a caricature that you can have of views like mine where you view it as, well, I'm pro-human, which means that I'm anti every other species. But that makes no sense because as, as, this, as concern about extinction implies we benefit in many ways from other species. So the key, I think of it as the human pro-human perspective means we want the best relationship possible with the other species. And you can think about this with, and, and it means different things for different species. So if it's, you know, malarial mosquitoes in a swamp nearby you, you want at least that local group of mosquitoes uh, extinct. You don't want them in your area. If you think about, if I think about my dog, for example, well, I want to, put a lot of effort into making, you know, giving him very high chances of survival and enjoying himself that 
you know, I, I have almost no concern for any other, I have no concern for any other non-human animal like I do for him. And then you think about a polar bear. Well, polar bear is my favorite animal like, to look at. So I want to be able to look at polar bears, but they would certainly like to kill me under many circumstances. So I need to have a good uh, relationship. So I'm not, I'm not thinking about the other animals like I'm thinking about other humans, which is I respect their rights. You know, I don't use any kind of coercion against them. I'm not willing to, to kill them. I'm not willing to exploit them. No, we have to be willing to exploit and kill other species to benefit. That's just the nature of the survival of any species. And no other species has any compunction about that. They just, they try to kill whatever they can. For us, we don't need, it makes no sense to just try to kill everything, but we need to kill certain kinds of species, even if it's just plants uh, to eat. So I think of it as what's the most beneficial relationship with the rest of nature. And I think overall, our relationship with the rest of nature has dramatically uh, improved. And so with species extinction, the question as well is, is the idea to preserve every species? Because 99 point whatever, 9% of species in history have gone extinct. So I think of it as, well, we want to preserve species for aesthetic reasons, just because we think they're beautiful. And the richer we are, the more of a concern we can have with that. So that's part of why it's a good idea to have machine power and be rich. And then the other thing is looking at, well, are there types of species where, you know, there's important kinds of interdependence in ecosystems? And that's an important thing to look at, but you can't look at it as ecosystem is this fragile, delicate balance and every species somehow is contributing to this perfect balance or web that helps us. That's just not true. The natural state of species and stuff didn't help us at all when it was totally, quote, natural 200 years ago. So we need to be intelligent about it. And generally what the catastrophists do is they have this view that nature is perfect, absent human impact. And so their view is we can't change anything. And they expect, again, they have this expectation that any impact we have is going to be catastrophic. And with the species extinction, these are largely things where they're just completely making up numbers. They're not, when they say X million species are going extinct, they haven't cataloged those species. They're just totally making this stuff up with bogus models. But because people assume impact is bad, it's plausible to them, yeah, everything's going extinct. Even though if you look at, say, the number of extinctions among, let's say, the beautiful species that we care about, those have been plummeting as we've become wealthier. So I think we should be, oh, concerned about extinction in a rational way from a pro-human perspective, not in a hysterical way from an anti-human uh, preserve the planet perspective. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to look at, um, you know, just running through my head as you're, as you're going off on, you know, what things are being extinct, what animals are being attacked, what natural habitats or ecosystems are being destroyed. You know, you try and think and you weigh the ones out of, you know, which ones maybe maybe um the victims of that whether it's through uh whatever we're using for our energy inputs or fossil fuels or whether it's you know just natural destructions of uh uh rainforest which can be contributed to let's just say agriculture in general so you know which ones go to which and yeah it's tough to say which if, if one is towards the other especially when we're trying to dictate which is coming from the climate warming and which one is coming from you know, some other man-made, um, man-made event that could be going on, you know, primarily. But you have say. to, you have, the people have to, I respect people on this issue if they acknowledge how amazing we've been making the world overall. If they say, yeah, we're making the world amazing. That's great. It's great to use energy and machines to transform the world, to make it more human friendly. But I'm concerned about say bees in this respect. Like I respect that kind of thing. But if people act like, oh, the world is terrible, we've ruined it. I, that's a non-starter for me. That person is not measuring things from a human perspective. And one, one memorable formulation I got from an economist named George Reisman is he said, uh, this is a paraphrase, but basically listening to somebody with this anti-human perspective, an anti-human scientist, like listening to him in terms of what we should do about our environment is like listening to a doctor who's on the side of the germs. And I really take that seriously. Like if, if you think that human, what human beings have done to this planet is overall bad, if you think us living to 80 instead of 30, like that's a bad thing. If you think the amount of time we have, the amount of opportunity we have, the number of people who haven't died in childbirth, like if that doesn't move you as this is really good, we want to make sure to preserve this and even expand this, then you're not 
pro-human. And every, it's, it, another issue is animal testing. Like there are scientists who are very knowledgeable about science who are anti-animal testing. They're not anti-animal testing because animal testing has no value. Animal testing, maybe it's overused some places, but it has incredible value. But they're not measuring good by the standard of humans. They're measuring good by the standard of the animals. And that's what I think most of the modern environmental movement is doing. Not, not most people who are sympathetic, but the leaders, it's an anti-human environmental movement. And I'm trying to be one of the leaders of the pro-human environmental movement who don't want to save the planet from human beings. We want to improve the planet for human beings. Well, I would say those are just precautionary measures. You know, like we were talking about- um, What's a precautionary measure? Well, like when you're using the one about the scientists saying, you know, being on the side of germs. I think thinking about, you know, where or how these things could negatively impact us, especially as being a social species we are, and seeing as how um, disease has been one of the major killers um, of our species for, you know, over the span of our time. So, you know, I think- No, no, side no but si side of the germs means they want the germs to win. So when you see with okay. COVID-19, okay. no, but people are saying this is great. You have a lot of leaders of the modern environmental movement saying, isn't it great how much human activity has decreased? And in the past, you have some of the leaders saying, you know, we want the right virus to come along. So just, it's, it, everything depends on what is your goal. What leaders if you're, have said that? Have said what? That we want the right virus to come along. That's terrible. It's, uh, yeah, but it's chapter one of Moral Case for Philosophers. I have a bunch of quotes to this effect. So there is, I believe, a guy named David Graeber, who is a like, leading biologist. And he, um, there's, a, I think, Prince Philip, who's a major figure in, you know, in the UK, has talked about this. And it's the implication, if you think that we have overpopulation, where there are too many of us, which certainly the planet of the humans is saying that, what are your options? I mean, you could kill people off deliberately, but sometimes people think, yeah, I, I just hope the right virus comes along. But even most people won't say that, but it's the mm -hmm. implication. If you say there are too many people, that means you want something to happen to radically reduce the number of people uh, quickly. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, think, you know, in the case of our planet during our time, it's not really the case of uh, the people count still. It's a matter of getting the people, the resources and the tools to use. You know, we have enough food. We, we can't feed everybody, though, and we still can't find a way to get everybody food. And um, the same thing goes with, like you said, you know, we obviously have an abundance of oil and other energies, uh, fossil fuels that we could use. You know, we talked about even right now with uh, the massive demand that's dropping right now, but we still can't get this to people. So in a perfect world, you know, how do we make sure we make the world better for people, especially, you know, in, um, you know, where you're going, where you, you want it to go is like, the more we can benefit people, the more we can get them the capabilities of the machines and the fossil fuels. Well, so with food, it's important that, yeah, it's not perfect, but it's been improving dramatically. And so the key, it absolutely has improved. Yeah. So, so the key, but the key is, I think the key is to look at where are the places where there's virtually no problem? And then how do you extend that to the places that there are problems? Because if you look at the places that are poorest, they're not just like randomly distributed throughout the US and Europe and certain places in the African continent and then certain places in Asia, the overwhelming uh, amount of it. And what you can see is it, so much of it comes down to political systems. There's a reason why the U.S. became so prosperous, and it's because we had the most freedom. Freedom is really the key to productivity because freedom allows the individual to think freely and then to create value and then to benefit from that. And that's what we've had in the U.S. If you look at a lot of places, um, uh, in you know in Africa, for example, it's very very hard to build like an electric grid um, because of the laws. Because you, it's very hard to go in there and to build something and to make a profit because they don't have good laws that protect businesses and enable them uh, to make a profit. And so that's just one small example. But th the key is all human beings around the world have the capability to produce a lot of value and to survive and to flourish. Like we all have, you know, we're all genetically incredibly similar. We all have amazing human brains, but the key is, do we live in a political system that empowers us? That's why in the U S we have people come over from the poorest places in the world and they become incredibly prosperous. Why is that? Because of the political system. So I think most fundamentally the key to universal prosperity is universal freedom better 
it's great that people can come here and I'm, I love that. And you know, my family's ultimately from that. And so I think that's fantastic, but the only way to do it for billions of people is for the other countries to become freer and to learn the best lessons of the free countries. Well, I mean, it, I don't know if we can explain it's totally freedom because you can look at the case of China right now. And, you know, if you look at the amount of like, I think what happened with the United States is, you know, a blend of manufacturing plus um, being that base of manufacturing, what happened after World War II. And I mean, when you look at China right now, I mean, with the amount of people they've brought out of poverty, but, and the amount of money that's been able to be pumped in there. And it's not necessarily due to freedom. We can all say that about China. They, you know, they aren't the beacon of, you know, freedom and freedom of choice to be able to move and do what you want and do as you please. Well, but economically, I mean, you can, well, yeah, but so freedom, you can think of freedom as a singular thing, but you can also think of it as having many subdivisions. So in the context of economic freedom, and, so, and particularly if you think about industrial freedom, so the ability to actually build different kinds of factories and, and power plants and, and all kinds of other things, they do in effect have something where people are are free to do that and to make money. And so that's why you have increasing numbers of billionaires there. And it, it, it's a totally different situation than places where you can't start a business and make money. The other thing with China is there's a lot of, and, and other places is there's a lot of, once, once a free country innovates something or free people innovate something, uh, most innovation comes from free places, then other people can copy it. And that, that's, I mean, leaving aside if it violates intellectual property, it's overwhelmingly a good thing that over time we can, learn more. So even a, a less free country now can use some of what the free countries have developed. But if you just want to talk about the average individual, not only being productive, but also being able to like live a life that they have control over, which that's a huge issue in China, the inability to do that in many ways, you need freedom for that uh, too. But we're, we're focused on the, I mean, if you just think about what's going to make different the poor parts of the world, they're always increasing in freedom. And if you compare China now to China with Mao and the Great Leap Forward, where the government is just, you know, randomly having a few people order certain people to go on farms and just ultimately killing millions of people, it's an incomparably freer country than it was 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I mean, I, I don't think that there well, they definitely have a lot more um, accessibility towards, like you say, machines or oil or natural gas. I think one of the biggest problems with China is that they, uh, they need to import so much natural resources, especially oil or fossil fuels, because they don't have it. I don't know about their coal stores, um, but I know that's definitely the case with, uh, with oil itself. Um, but, you know, I, I still think that it's tough for people in the rest of the world or, you know, to say that you know, we have the best case scenario, you know, talk about where, because totally mindset, attitude, you know, and, you know, a po positive philosophy towards everything that's happening and going on is an easy thing to do. But I mean, you know, we're, we're born and we're birthed with all those resources where we were fortunate to have those accessibilities, you know, is it just government that's, you know, restricting and limiting or is it, you know, the accessibility to these tools or to these resources, but what is hindering the people from being able to receive you know, I would say the people in other parts of the world, those 3 billion people who don't have. Yeah, but if you look at a place like Japan, is it that they're drowning in amazing resources? No, but they have, you know, they have a system of, I mean, there are cultural reasons too, but yeah, definitely you, need, you need the government. I mean, what you need is for the individual to be free to create value. That's mm -hmm. what needs to happen. When individuals are free to create value and trade with one another, really good things happen. And you see that when, that when that happens, you can have individuals, even in places with very few, quote unquote, natural resources, you can see them thrive. And then when you don't have freedom, you can see places with a lot of natural resources suffer. And off, you know, what sometimes will happen, and there's a lot of tragedy there, is you'll have places with a lot of resources. And the only thing that'll happen is foreign people will come with an oil company or something like that, but the, the majority of people in the country will be very poor. And I think this happens in a, in a lot of places around the world. And, the, but the, this, and so I think sometimes there are unethical deals that in terms of people coming into countries, but the main thing that's going on is those countries need property rights and freedom for their own citizens. That's, that's when people look at, oh, the U.S. is so wealthy, other places 
are less wealthy. It's not that nature gave us this pile of stuff and we're just gobbling it up. No, it's that we have more productive ability ultimately because we're freer. And so the, the key thing is not to send our stuff somewhere else, but is to encourage others to liberate their people. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, I don't think it is uh, the fact of just passing out uh, uh, <laughs> natural resources and pieces of equipment. But, you know, it's a matter of like, like uh, to point on what you're saying, but to how do we make sure that that availability is there, especially in a time where, you know, the processes of information, the processes of knowledge, uh, or the power to have all these uh, tools is just there, you know? So we can't say that people, I mean, is, is it again, is it just that they aren't hardworking or, you know, what is, what would be limiting them? Or is it just government that is restricting them and certain levels of people don't want them to be prosperous? I mean, I think it's government and, and ideas, uh, mm -hmm. but government, the thing is, you mentioned we've got a lot more communication now, so it's a lot easier to get access to good ideas, good mindsets. But if you're in a place where you're really not free, where you, it's really hard to start a business and make money off it, and it's, that's a really difficult situation to be in. So I, I just reaffirm that I think political freedom mm -hmm. should be the key focus. And I, I don't think of it as it's our responsibility to do, you know, to do that for everybody. I think it's the responsibility of governments to empower individuals to make the best of their own lives. Individuals are very creative alone and cooperating with others if we are, are liberated. So it's, it's not that those of us who have become successful, our focus should be like somehow, how do we give our stuff away to those who aren't successful? It's liberating everyone uh, to be successful because we earn in the U.S., we've largely earned what we have. We haven't taken it. Everyone was poor 200 years ago. We haven't taken it from people. We've created it. And other people can create just as much or more if they're free. Oh, a little bit. We've taken a little bit over the years. That's not where, the, that's not where I mean, that's not, if you look at the history, there's much more exploitation in the U.S. And, and outside the U.S. before 200 years ago. We look at even times of slavery, the standard of living then compared to the standard of living now. Mm. It's not like Steve Jobs is, like, <laughs> it's not like that's a slave situation. That's a situation of creating uh, value. So yeah, it's, it's, I mean, people, you can always focus on the history of the way things work out. Mm -hmm. The history of the way things work out is messy, but there's just this fundamental of free people uh, trading with one another, creating value, prospering in a mutually beneficial way where in general if we're free to produce and trade we can all benefit over time and so that's that's what people should be looking at mm -hmm. if they want to know how do we have more success in the world no i mean i was a i was a major of history and I, I totally it's not about dwelling on the negative and dwelling on you know what were the terrible reactions on it's it's improving upon them and looking at you know the terrible or the great that was happening and continuously to approve upon, you know, it's never that history actually repeats. It's the fact that we can look back and we can just continuously do the same things because the same themes will overlay. It's never actually the same events happen over and over again. Um, that people I think fail to look at and where was I going to go with that? But I'll jump on the next one. So in terms of using fossil fuels and oil, how, I, I know we like with new technologies, we're able to continuously find new sources of them you know, especially when we look at fracking, what it's done for natural gas in the United States, but how long can we continuously use fossil fuels with, and how continuously do you, th do you think, because I think it's a betting game, um, just like with anything, that we'll be able to innovate out of this or innovate our way when we do come into a problem or innovate our way when something bad does happen? Well, it depends what you mean by, this is the, the categories of bad people. Usually bring out our, one, we're going to run out, or two, it's going to make the planet uninhabitable. So which one of those do you want me to, because those are two, they're, I think they're related in terms of mm. the false assumptions behind them, but it sounds like you're more worried about the supply side of it. No, no, no. Supply, um, it would be more on the other side. Like how, how long can we continuously use it in terms of, especially if we're going to be using more and we've only seen a negative impact on the environment in terms of the use of the, of the fuels themselves. Well, but yeah, I, so I was trying to explain before why I don't, I don't think we've only seen a negative view. I think a negative impact on our environment. I think our environment has overwhelmingly become better. So if you look at terms of how accessible 
is clean water, even how clean is the air the average person breathes uh, now with modern fossil fuels compared to wood or animal dung that are in the more natural parts of the world and that our ancestors used. You know, our air is cleaner and getting cleaner. Uh, our safety from climate is greater. The amount of food that we have access to is greater. So from a human perspective, I keep saying this, but I keep emphasizing, the planet is getting better and better. And so it's not that there are no side effects, but in general, the side effects continue to go down. I think that mostly what we want is people are looking at the planet from an anti-human perspective. So they're seeing we've impacted the planet a lot, and they think that's bad because they think the goal is to mi impact the planet minimally. Whereas I think the, the goal is to make the planet as human-friendly as possible. So I think we've made it better. So I don't see a problem you could ask with CO2 levels, okay, well, we've increased the CO2 in the atmosphere from 0.03% of the atmosphere to 0.04% of the atmosphere. We've experienced, let's say, two degrees Fahrenheit of warming in the past 170 years. Along with that, is that, like, are we expecting, could that go out of control? Like, that's a legitimate kind of thing, but I think if you study the history of the planet, uh, you're you know, you look at, well, so CO2 levels today are one-fifteenth of their historic, their long-time historical high when life thrived. Temperatures today are 25 degrees Fahrenheit less than their long-time historical high where life thrived. So there's no reason to think we can't adapt to totally different, I mean, there's, we have no idea how to increase CO2 as much as it has existed for a lot of this planet's history. Mm -hmm. So I don't think there's any reason at all to think that the planet is beginning to come unlivable, that changes are going to happen on some crazy pace. There could be negatives, but overall, a capable human species with uh, ample machine power, we're going to keep making life better and better as long as, as, long as we're free to. So I think that if you, don't, if you haven't studied these issues, it's important to look into. It, one shouldn't say it's impossible that there could be a catastrophe before looking into it. But I think if you look at the actual nature of what's called the greenhouse effect, how that works, how significant it is, what the historical context is in terms of where we are at CO2 levels, temperatures. There's no reason from a human perspective to think there's a catastrophe. But if you think that human impact is bad, then you'll think it's a catastrophe just because you think it's wrong for us to impact the earth. So the question with climate change is, is climate change bad because it's on balance bad for humans if we include with it the energy that comes with it? Or is it bad just because it's bad for us to change the climate? Just because we basically have a commandment that says, thou shalt, change, thou shalt not change the climate. And I disagree with that religion of saying we shouldn't impact the planet. But I think that's a lot of what's driving people. Not that it's so bad for humans. They just think it's intrinsically bad to change the planet. Well, I, I think that those ways that, you know, like you mentioned that the air is cleaner, I'm going to have to look into that. Or if you have a study, I'll definitely... Uh, or air and water is cleaner. Yeah, I mean, a chapter I one I of Moral Case for Fossil. I mean, if you actually, if you want to look a quick reference, people go to fossilfueldebate.com. It's, I debated Robert F. Kennedy Jr. last year. I tend to debate a lot of people. And I have a lot, of, I use that data in that debate. And so people can look there. But yeah, in terms of, yeah, for the average human being, I mean, it's common sense for, I think, both of those, but certainly for water, like access to clean water now versus 200 years ago. I mean, anyone 200 years ago would think our clean water situation is a miracle. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the air and water being cleaner, I'm definitely going to take a look at those studies because um, I can't say off the top of my head whether uh, it's uh, – and I don't, I don't know who measured, you know, 50 years ago or 60 years ago. Yeah, but I mean, how could it not – How you think about people living in huts? I mean, you just look at today, the worst air quality problems are indoor air quality issues. People who are burning wood and animal dung indoors because they don't have – the industrial society and like decentralized heating and power where they can you know, use cleaner fuels away from their home. So the, na the natural state of things is basically everyone needs fuel to cook food and usually to heat because cold is a bigger problem for human beings than heat in most parts of the world. So you need to heat yourself. And the traditional way of doing that is burning whatever nature happens to make available to you, which is gonna be basically the feces of animals or wood in trees until you've cut them all down, which is what happens in primitive places. So you got to burn those and you, you need to get the heat directly from them or directly from some furnace. So you're going to be having tons of side effects. And that's, that's millions of people in the world get, uh, you know, get respiratory issues at minimum from indoor air pollution. So I mean, 
even if you compare that to a place like China, which isn't using the best pollution control technology, it's much worse than that. But if you take places like North Dakota using coal, where they have super clean air, there's just no question. I mean, you can, I can show you the studies. The studies are on the website. But just anyone with any just knowledge of how things work has to know that we need to heat ourselves, that if we go with our most natural options, that's a really rough situation in terms of air quality along with everything else, and that today is much better. And there's every reason to think we can continue to make it better. Mm-hmm. No, I, I, you know, again, I'm only thinking like in that, uh, I would say that first world scenario, especially in the United States, how things, um, how the use of these certain fuels and these certain um, energy inputs have, the, how we've made water streams cleaner, or we've made the energy, or in, certain, in terms of the air, especially being in Southern California, you know, especially where there's not so much uh, airplanes flying around, the, the air is pretty, pretty damn clean. It looks a lot. So, you know, I think this is another case or, you know, I think you would agree with this is finding a way to actually, you know, use up the, the treatment of the air when all that stuff gets sprayed out, whether it's fuel or whatever comes off uh, a jet plane when it's flying around. Because, you know, there's definitely a difference when we've limited the amount of use from cars or airplanes. Uh, you know, just I've only been here a year and a half and I can definitely see, you know, a difference between then and now. And like I said, cars are much cleaner in terms of the kind of the outputs that we put in them. Well, um, right now we're not, I mean, we're not doing much. Uh, so, but that's, that's a good, the Corona case is a good one to look at because people will observe, well, at least in certain areas like Los Angeles, where you still have some smog issues, they'll say, oh, well, there's less smog. Isn't this fantastic? But to go back to one of my original points, you have to look at the full context. You have to look at what are the benefits and what are the side effects of being able to live a modern industrial life. So of course, if you don't do something, you're not going to have the side effects from it, but life overall could be much worse. Just like if we don't use computers, we won't have computer viruses. That doesn't mean that, and so if we stop using computers, people could say, oh, isn't it amazing? I don't have to deal with computer viruses anymore. Isn't that, you would say, but your life is worse because you don't have this amazing power. And that's true with energy. As long as fossil fuels are by far the lowest cost form of energy for billions of people, the side effects that come with them, particularly if we use modern pollution control technology, are totally worth it. So people, just as people hundreds of years ago would burn wood, even though there was a ton of smoke, because it was overall good for their lives, so people do that with fossil fuels today. So when people, I would just suggest people think about, always look at, are people looking at the full context, or are they just looking at side effects out of context? And if they're just looking at side effects out of context, to attack something that's overall beneficial, why are they doing that? And maybe it's because they don't value human life. Maybe they're ignorant, but maybe they don't value human life as much as they say. Maybe they think it's bad for us to impact the planet and they're just looking for an excuse. And so they're misrepresenting what fossil fuels or other things do so that they can attack it. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's completely. I mean, there there are some Debbie Downers. That, that is definitely true. Some people who are very, very um, alarmist on the factors and issues. And I mean, um, you know, they see the images of the polar bears. They see the images of the ice caps melting. They see a forest being torn down. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think there's definitely a bigger, a bigger conversation there to figure out. You know, what about the image? What about the image of 8 million people being able to live and have more opportunity than ever, or even the images of there being way more polar bears. So there, there's just this, yeah. I want to just keep coming back to you. There's this, people aren't looking at the full context. They're assuming human impact is self-destructive and they're not really valuing human life. I think it's mostly accidental on the part of most of us, but we have been taught to have this kind of framework of we're looking, I'm going to call it like the anti-impact framework to just think that all of our impacts are bad and that we should stop. And I, I suggest looking at it from a, what I call a human flourishing framework. How do we allow you know people to live to their fullest potential and that means we need to impact the earth a lot and so we should celebrate our intelligent impact on the earth and we should just be trying to minimize our unintelligent impact Hmm. um well i want to tail this into the end because i want to be respectful of your time and i want to go into you know what are we doing in terms of because obviously there is a side effect there is a uh a, we can call it runoffs, not the word, but you know, ex- exhaust, runoff, certain things that come off from using these fossil fuels. What are some things that maybe you know or you guys are working on or studying of ways to capture, you know, whether it's carbon or whether it's uh, 
um, the offense of this and nuclear energy, because I know nuclear energy is a big one. And I know mm-hmm. it's one of the best ways for us to get energy. But I also I'm pretty sure that once we get a facility running, they never stop running. That core reactor is going to always be either in use or be operated. You could probably fill me in a little bit more on that. Well, I just want to say, so, I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who analyzes these issues. I'm not producing any of the, the forms analyzes, of energy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, don't, I mean, I'm not working on any technologies myself, but I think in general. Those you're familiar or aware of. Yeah, but I think in general, the, uh, you know, I disagree with the idea that we're on an unsustainable trajectory, that things are getting worse. I think things are getting better. So, the question is, how can they get even better? That is, how can we get even more of the benefits of low-cost energy, low-cost machine power with fewer side effects. But I, you know, I think in, like, what we have today is really good. So I don't mind that at all continuing. But if you look at, say, coal, oil, and gas, you just see in the, the general idea of pollution control, they have many different methods and they're improving all the time to essentially capture the, the different kinds of emissions that particularly that can pollute air. There's also water type issues, but the biggest thing is air. Like you, you know, it's, it's a value to have clean air. You don't actually don't want perfectly cl- clean air. You don't want perfectly clean anything, but you know, in place, certainly in places like China, you would want all things being equal, much cleaner air. And so the better we get at, at that, uh, the better. And that, but that's been developed, you know, 50 years we've been improving and I think that will continue to improve. And that's a, and that's a great thing. In terms of nuclear, you know, nuclear has, is an amazing technology, particularly for electricity generation, it's the only non-fossil fuel technology that we have any evidence can provide at least electricity on a global scale. So not heavy-duty transportation is a real question, and some other forms of energy are a question, but electricity. So with nuclear, the key question is really, can it be produced at a comparably low cost to fossil fuels? Because most places it's more expensive. And I think the key issue there is policy. I think we need, I think right now we criminalize nuclear energy. We treat it as very unsafe, whereas it's actually the safest form of energy. And so we put so many restrictions on it that it just takes forever to build and costs a lot. And the analogy I use is that if you said, you know, if somebody said to you, I forget, what's your first name? Brandon. 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 I should should know that by now. I just know you as the basketball playing bus driver. But Brandon, like, I'm worried for your safety. You're only allowed to go out if you have five bodyguards with you. Like, I'm worried about that. Like, I don't know how much money you make, but for most people, five bodyguards, that's a big expense. Let's say it's going to cost you, you know, 350 grand a year. Like, it would be expensive to be you. So you just think about the same thing for nuclear. Like, if people are saying, every, this is so dangerous, we need all these bodyguards in effect policing it all the time, it's going to become super expensive. So I think the key thing that needs to happen with nuclear is to decriminalize it, to recognize that it's actually safe, to, to identify the actual risk areas, which are pretty minimal, and have laws based on those. And I think once that happens, then you'll have a huge amount of innovation and people will, will pursue that. So from my, my perspective is never on, I know what technology is best. It's I want the policy framework where the smart innovators in energy, and I'm not one of them, I'm just an observer, or the smart innovators in energy can compete and create the best products. And it's part of why I'm so emphatic about freedom. So we really need freedom and decriminalization for nuclear. And I think that plus freedom for fossil fuels and really freedom for everything else. But I think most of the innovation will come from fossil fuels and nuclear for the foreseeable future. Like that will lead to lower cost energy for everyone and more opportunity for the, certainly for the poorest people in the world to have energy and to benefit from it, but, but really a better world for all of us. So, you, I mean, I mean, the reason people are, I would assume are alarmed or, you know, the, the two or three, ca- three cases, I would say that, uh, you know, where there have been negative events that happen with um, nuclear things. I, I mean, I do understand nuclear power, you know, especially in France. I mean, they have a major benefit that they do have a lot of, one of the biggest, modern countries or you know once say first world countries that uses nuclear power to power it's uh it's electrical units in its country um but you know we definitely have the stigma here from chernobyl and i would say three mile um, well, Ch- chernobyl but but see that's interesting because chernobyl is the only one with actual deaths so three mile island fukushima you know those are both with 
no deaths from yeah. radiation. So that that's it's another case where you have to ask by what standard are people evaluating it from? Because if you have your worst energy accident and it has zero deaths, if you look at, at the non-communist world, I mean, in the communist world, everything malfunctioned. One economist said, you know, like their Soviet toasters caused God knows how many thousands of deaths. Like when you have a communist country and there's no regard for individual rights, people make everything dangerous. But if you look at the, the, the civilized world, the free world, there's there's no deaths from these uh, major acts. And even Chernobyl, you're talking in the order of a hundred. You're not talking about, you know, if, if a dam breaks, you, you could easily have a hundred thousand deaths, you know, and like a natural gas facility, you could easily have thousand deaths depending on what it is. So nuclear is actually the safest and, and the accidents where it's gone wrong show that it's safe. I'm not against those other forms of energy. I still think they're worth it, but we have to be very worth it. We have to be very objective that this is the safest. And I think that the reason people regard nuclear as unsafe, even though it's actually the safest, is because they're not evaluating it by how good is this for human flourishing. They're evaluating it by how little impact does this have. And they think it's somehow unnatural for us to split the atom. And they think of it as playing God. We're just taught to think, oh, if we're impacting nature in a new way, that's got to be bad. Versus actually looking at the evidence and seeing, no, wait, this way of impacting nature is actually safer because, for example, nuclear, like a nuclear reaction, a fission reaction um, for a power plant, it literally can't explode. It's, it's much safer than something like a dam that can burst or, you know, natural gas facility that can explode. As it just the reality of it from a human perspective is this is a very safe uh, technology. The, the history confirms that but it's the, it's the philosophy that's looking at the history from an anti-impact perspective that makes people think it's bad. Mm -hmm. No, you know, one of the main reasons why I had you on is in, you know, from talking with you, I can totally see this, uh, even though we might not agree on everything with fossil fuels, the idea is that, you know, people really need to weigh way out what it takes to run a civilization what it takes to run a city a country this world and if we want things to operate we want things to effectively move certain ways and you want to go away from the ways that have been working or the things that we have been doing there's going to be negative repercussions there's going to be certain things that we're not going to be able to do um to continue life the way it is so you know i think that people really have to weigh that out whether they're you know climate alarmist or you know they don't believe that there are any negative effects I'm not saying you're one of those you know you're definitely way out you know there's warming of the planet there's you know obviously something we have to continuously do to be able to improve upon the technologies that we have but you know people really need to think about what the world how it works and why it works the way it does and how we make it better for the eight billion people we're, we're scratching we're scratching eight billion but you know, how do we make it better for everybody which is an almost impossible feat but we're we're pushing we're doing it yeah so i would say freedom including the freedom to use fossil fuels and nuclear energy and if people are interested in, in more I, we have a website industrialprogress.com and we have a weekly newsletter and you can check out uh all of our stuff there but yeah, i really appreciate the opportunity to be on the show no no thank you so much for taking time out of your day and uh, guys, you can go check uh, guys and ladies and go check him out over uh, on Twitter. It's Alex Epstein twenty two. Am I right? Or no, no, that's Epstein? in that's Instagram. No, that's and on Instagram. Twitter I got Alex Epstein. Uh, fortunately, so it's just Alex Epstein on on Twitter. But, you know, you search for my name on the internet. It's pretty easy to find these things. Yeah, trust me. I've uh, there's a Brandon Reese artist who I guess he's been making art before I was Brandon Reese. So I yeah, don't. Well, know there's an Ep Reese. there's an Epstein recently who's been having a lot of people make fun of my name. <laughs> oh man that sucks yeah i got that joke <laughs> um thank you so much for tuning in thank you so much uh, uh, for everybody else who was tuning in um remember you can go check out the show itunes and, um we're on youtube you can watch the show visually uh stitcher soundcloud everywhere you consume podcasts we are there more shows coming out next week or these shows will be out today wherever you consume these thank you again and alex thank you so much Hey, good to talk to you. The moments, uh, for those who...